Have you ever seen a UFO? I have, but it turns out it wasn't quite what everybody thought. Here's what happened. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. One of the cool assignments I had back in my early astronaut days was to be the science equipment operator aboard NASA's WB-57F aircraft. You're probably wondering what all that gobbledygook means. The WB is a really odd-looking jet that can fly very, very high, like 67,000 feet or so. That's over 20,000 meters. It sits very low on the ground and has long, fat, droopy wings that are anchored by two enormous jet engines set close to the fuselage. We always got the strangest looks when we arrived at an unfamiliar airfield. I think that's because there was a whiff of something sinister about the WB, especially if you watched it taxi straight towards you. Oh, and just to cap off all that oddness, it is absolutely the world's slowest jet. Its virtue is that it can be outfitted with various instruments to make a wide array of scientific measurements. Back at the height of the Cold War, for example, the WBs were enlisted to help detect the trace amounts of radioactivity that illegal nuclear tests would produce. In my time, and still today, NASA uses them for things like high-resolution land imaging or to capture samples of the stratosphere for upper atmospheric research. The rationale for putting astronauts like me in the science operator role was that it would be good crew training for coordination and also working in spacesuits, since we had to wear full pressure suits at those extreme altitudes. Sometime back in 1982, I flew a mission that was unusual even for us. Our assignment was to image a test area out in West Texas, some 500 miles or so west of our operating base. The unusual part was that the investigators wanted the images taken several hours after sunset so that the thermal signature we were collecting would better represent the composition of the rocks and soils below, not just the hot Texas sun. Our flight pending calculations showed that we needed to launch around 5 p.m., as I recall, to get over the test site at an acceptable time. Adding on our time spent over the site, we calculated our landing time at home base would be just before midnight. This was going to be a really long day. Pilot Rogers Wig and I started suiting up around 4 p.m., donning our pressure suits and preparing our bodies physically for the rigors of high altitude took a good bit of time. But we launched right on time, as planned, and droned slowly west. 
We finally arrived over the test site, spent a few hours making the measurements, and turned eastward to head home. The view was stunning on our flight back. It was as if we were flying right along the edge of night. Darkness had fallen hours ago on the ground below us, but at our cruise altitude of 65,000 feet, we were still catching the sun's rays. About an hour after our turn back for home, we spotted a very bright object just off our nose and way above us. We knew it couldn't be an airplane because only the SR-71 Blackbird spy planes could fly higher than we were. And also this thing didn't seem to be moving. An SR-71 would be streaking by. So what could it be? I remembered that there was a scientific balloon launching facility in Palestine, Texas, so speculated it might be one of their balloons, but Roger wasn't at all convinced. He was about to report our sighting to air traffic control when they called us and said, NASA 957, your traffic is a weather balloon at your 11 o'clock position, altitude 110,000 feet. Well, that settled that, and so we carried on groaning our way eastward. A tailwind helped us get back a bit earlier than planned happily, so I was hopping in my car for the drive home a little after 11.30 p.m. I turned on the radio hoping for some nice tunes, but found even my favorite music channel filled with chatter about the UFO in the sky. Hundreds, if not thousands, of people across all of Texas had seen the same big bright object we spotted and were absolutely convinced they had sighted an alien craft. The post explained patiently to each caller that it was known to be a scientific balloon launched by the team at Palestine that was simply so high above the ground it was still in sunlight well after it was dark for us down below. The callers were having none of it. Some sounded disappointed to have their excitement and hopes of something special dashed. A few were relieved that it wasn't really an invasion or something scarier but most were stridently insistent. Nobody could tell them what they had seen, and they didn't mean just some bright object in the sky. No, sir. They had seen a UFO, full stop. They dismissed the Palestine balloon explanation out of hand, claiming variously that the government's just lying or covering up as usual, or saying simply that only fools trust anything that anyone of authority said. I shook my head and laughed for the first few minutes, but my laughter soon gave way to worry as I thought more deeply about the long-term implications of this mindset. I realized that the spread of this could atomize everything, shatter any social structure from a family to a company or, or a country into fragments of single individuals, each awash in distrust, of everything except their own experiences and perceptions. Oh, no good comes of this, I thought. The foreboding I felt that night seems confirmed by present-day events far too often. I wish I could close this tale with a solution, or even first steps towards a solution, but I don't really have any. All I can say is that I believe we can each do something within our own circle to build a piece of new common ground with those around us, regardless of their views. No matter how small that may be, I believe it will matter. And I see no other way. 
So I look for chances to do this every single day. And I hope you will too. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Dot com.